This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, oh, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All through the night, I'm gonna let it shine. All through the night, I'm gonna let it shine. All through the night, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, oh let it shine, let it shine. Grace and peace and welcome to Cokesbury United Methodist Church for worship. My name is Taylor Mertens. I serve as the pastor here. This is the day the Lord has made and we are here to rejoice and be glad in it. I want to start off today by first apologizing. My allergies are really bad, so if my voice sounds a little uh, different or even silly while I'm singing or while I'm preaching, forgive me. Uh, just bad allergies. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in the life of our church. While you're watching this uh, on Sunday morning, I'm actually, in fact, also going to be in our parking lot for a drive-in service, doing the same thing at the same time. Next Sunday, we will only have an online worship service for the 20th of June. And then on the 27th of June, we will have uh, a drive-in service and an online service. And that will be my final Sunday as the pastor here at Cokesbury. I've been here for four years. It has been a tremendous joy and an honor to serve this church. But I ask for you to keep me in your prayers, keep my family in your prayers as we're making this transition. Pray for Pastor Gail. I was able to meet with her this week and, and talk about the church, show her the building, talk to her about all of you and, and what it's been like to worship with you for the last four years and especially online over the last year. So prayer, prayers uh, are in order for my family and I, but also for Pastor Gail as we make these different transitions. Uh, there continue to be a lot of things going on in the life of our church, not just pastoral transitions. You can read about them on our church website or our Facebook page. We're continuing to send out weekly devotionals. We're making Facebook Live videos, all that sort of stuff, so that we can stay rooted and grounded in our faith, even while everything seems to be changing around us. Um, we're going to be looking at a really, really wonderful passage uh, from Paul today about all things becoming new, uh, which is a great part of Christianity because it can feel at times so familiar, and yet every once in a while God just socks us with something new. And I hope you, in fact, hear something new today. So with that, I encourage you to bow your heads for a moment, find a posture that's comfortable, and just join me in a moment of silent prayer. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful, wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Lord, give us confidence in our discipleship. 
Not the confidence that we've earned or deserved anything, but that in spite of who we are and what we've done or left undone, you've already determined the end of our stories. And in so doing, help us to see that our ends are, in fact, our beginnings. As we move through the rhythms of life, Lord, bestow upon us the wonder and the joy of discovering that we have no lives except our lives in you. Help us, above all, to remember that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. With that, Lord, each of us will now lift up to you our own joys and our own concerns this day, whether silently or aloud. And as you taught us, Lord, so now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. A scripture reading today comes from, as I said before, uh, one of Paul's letters, the second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. Hear now God's holy word. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God. And I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our hymn today is number 156 in the United Methodist Hymnal, I Love to Tell the Story. If you're unfamiliar with the words, there's an online bulletin that will have the, the lyrics for you. You can access it through the link in the video description. So join me now as I play on the cajon and sing, I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story, because I know tis true. 
It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story to be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story it did so much for me and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and his love I love to tell the story Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and his love I love to tell the story For those who know it best Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most stories, they follow a common structure, or to put it another way, they, stories share similar shapes. And all stories with shapes can be drawn out on a piece of paper, or they can be acted out by hand like I'm going to do with my preachment today. All stories have a beginning and an end, and all stories have bad news and good news. You start here, you end here, and things are either bad or good. And the best example of this, that's the most simple, is perhaps the story of the man who falls in a hole. He starts here, things are bad because he falls into the hole, but then someone helps him out and he gets out of the hole again. Beginning, end, bad news, 
good news. But now I'm going to demonstrate with a little more of a complicated story. There's a girl. Perhaps she's 16 or 17 years old, and she starts her story off squarely in the realm of bad news. Why? Because her life is garbage. Her mom is dead. Now, that would be enough for the start of a story for her to be in bad news, but her father goes off, marries a horrible woman with two equally horrible daughters who treat our heroine terribly. And then, wonder of wonders, there's a ball to be held at the nearby castle, and all of the daughters are invited. Do you know this story? Now, our soot-covered protagonist is left behind while everyone else goes to have a good time. So she's still down here in bad news. But this is when the story gets good, because lo and behold, enter fairy godmother. She bestows gifts upon the girl better than her wildest imagination, clothes, transportation, and even a pair of glass slippers. And she goes to the ball, and not only that, she dances with the prince. This is the best her life has ever been, but then the clock strikes 12. She has gone squarely from good news to bad news as all of her magical enhancements disappear back to square one, maybe just a little bit higher than she was at the beginning, because at least now she can remember she had one night of fun. Narrative angst ensues until a specter of a missing glass slipper is found, and it is used to identify the mystery woman who then marries the prince. They live happily ever after, and now they're off the chart. You see the story? Bad news becomes good news, becomes bad news, good news off the charts. Now, The rise and fall of Cinderella, of course, that's the story I was telling, it might at first appear unique. It is, after all, this indelible story of of bad news turning into good news. But it's a really common story. That is, most stories follow this same structure. There's a, a travel bookstore owner and operator. He lives in a rather posh area of London, but sales are miserable. He is in the category and in the realm of bad news. But then one day, miraculously, a beautiful and a famous actress enters his shop and purchases a book. Later, however, he spills orange juice all over her in a chance encounter on the sidewalk, and he invites her over to his house to get cleaned up. The chemistry, it it crackles on the screen, hijinks ensue, and they become a couple. He has gone from bad news to good news. But her fame is too much for him to handle, and he breaks it off. Back to bad news. Only after a conversation with his friends does he realize the error of his ways. He makes a a public display of affection and affirmation for her at a press conference. She agrees to get back together with him. They are together and off the charts. This, of course, is the romantic comedy Notting Hill. Bad news becomes good news becomes very bad news until it goes off the charts in good news. It's a meta narrative. It follows this kind of roller coaster. It starts in the same place and it ends in the same place. And this same chart can be applied to a great number of stories, like Toy Story. It does the same thing in Star Wars and Indiana Jones, even Moana and Romeo and Juliet, though that one kind of has a pretty bad bummer at the end. But all those stories, they have a beginning, they have an end. There's bad news, and there's good news. This is how stories work. Kurt Vonnegut wrote some of the most memorable stories of the 20th century, including things like Cat's Cradle and Breakfast of Champions and Slaughterhouse-Five. His writing is a mess of paradoxes and contradictions. It's at times science fiction and yet contemporary criticism. It can be dark and it can be funny. It can be countercultural and sentimental. And he has 
tips for how one tells a story or writes a story. He says, you should give the reader at least one character he or she can root for. Smart. You've got to give them a good protagonist. Every character, he says, should want something, even if it's only a glass of water. Every sentence must do one of two things, reveal character or advance the action. He says, be a sadist. No matter how sweet or innocent your leading characters may be, make awful things happen to them in order that the reader may see what they are made of. Think of Cinderella. You're rooting for her. She wants something. Something terrible happens to her. Uh, she, things are good, then something terrible happens to her again. It gives us a chance to see what the character is made of. And this is the best one of all. He says, start as close to the end as possible. To heck with suspense. Readers should have such a complete understanding of what's going on in the story, where and why, that they could finish the story themselves should cockroaches eat the last pages. This is Kurt Vonnegut. Now, I love all those tips, but that last one to me is the most fascinating, about starting as close to the end as possible. Now, I, I want to return to Cinderella for a moment, and I want to apply his rule to the story of Cinderella so that rather than starting with a depressed young teenager stuck with two terrible stepsisters and an even more horrific stepmother, we begin instead at the end with her dancing around the palace, moving to and fro in the arms of her prince. Now, as far as anyone can tell, this woman has always been in places like this. She's supposed to be in places like this, except you, the, the reader or the viewer, you notice. Amidst all the perfections of this scene, that this beautiful young woman, she has soot, she has cinders clinging to her nylons. You think, how did this happen? Who is she? Really, what's the story? Now that is an exciting beginning to the story. You see, what we might, we might care or we might think we care about how things conclude, but how we get to the conclusion is far more interesting and compelling. T.S. Eliot wrote, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make an, a beginning. The end is where we start from. The end is where we start from. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul, in a sense, was saying, Look, we already know how the story ends. We need not fret about what happens on the final page. That's up to God. The only thing we have to concern ourselves is this. What are we going to do until we get there? Think about Paul, the person. And keeping with the theme about starting at the end, let's imagine this evangelist traveling the greater Mediterranean with a desire to do nothing but to preach Christ and him crucified. Imagine Paul, if you can, walking the streets of Corinth. A crowd is gathered to hear what he says. But meanwhile, someone in the crowd murmurs loud enough, wasn't he the one who was persecuting Christians? I mean... That's a way to start the beginning of a story. How did he get there? What set him aflame? What changed him? We can do the same thing to Jesus. We don't start with, with the manger in the middle of the night, but instead we start with the tomb on Easter from which the, the resurrected Christ departs. A dead man, resurrected. Boom! That's how you kick off a story. Who is this guy? What happened to him? On and on the questions go, and the story gets a chance to answer those questions. The end is where we start from. 
I mean, that's what Paul did in every town that he shared the good news. I mean, can you imagine if Paul entered into Corinth with a list of 10 reasons to believe Jesus was the Son of God? Can you imagine him passing out tracts about why you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior so you won't burn in hell? Can you imagine him picketing various community events with big signs and slogans about various moralisms? No, that's not what Paul did. Paul told the story, and he started with the end. If we are beside ourselves, he writes, if we appear wild and off our rockers, it is because Christ has grabbed hold of us and has refused to let go. This Christ loves us, loves us so fervently for reasons we cannot even fathom that it has set us aflame for the good news. Hear it. Hear the good news, Paul declares, because one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died that his resurrection might be our resurrection. So we need not merely live for ourselves alone. If we live for Christ, we live for all. We, Paul says, Unlike the world, we do not regard one another from a human point of view. That's the end, which is our, which is our beginning. Now, Paul was writing to an early church community that was wrestling with all kinds of in- implications about what it means to follow Jesus. If you ever want to get a taste of a very early soap opera, go read First and Second Corinthians. I mean, this community was divided over eating habits and clothing options and moral behavior. They were falling apart before they even really had a chance of coming together. And it's in the midst of that friction, Paul writes this letter and drops this remarkable bombshell. He says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. We might rejoice in viewing one another through our mistakes and our shortcomings, but in the kingdom of God, we are viewed only through what Christ did and does for us. We might enjoy holding our judgments and our prejudices against one another, but in the kingdom of God, Jesus knows we deserve nothing, and yet we receive everything. We might love propping up all of our good works for everyone else to see, but in the kingdom of God, there is a judgment that comes for each and every one of us. Contrary to how we often imagine Jesus in our minds or we present him in church, he's not some do-gooder that is forever wagging his finger at every one of our indiscretions. Jesus is actually far more like that, that wayward uncle who shows up at a funeral with a sausage under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. And while everyone is dabbing their eyes with, with tissues, Jesus says, Why are you crying? Do not lose heart. This is not the end. The promise of the gospel is that our end is, in fact, our beginning. But there is bad news. No amount of good works or fervent prayers or or regular weekly attendance in worship will ever put us squarely in the category of the good. Not a one of us is truly good. No, not one, Paul writes in another place. We, We do things we know we shouldn't. We avoid doing things we know we should do. If, if some young enterprising writer were to analyze our lives in detail, to, to plot us on that kind of movable graph like I did earlier, if they wanted to display them for everyone else to see, if they wanted to show the things we've done or the things that have been done to us in the end, it would put us down squarely in the bottom. But there is good news. In fact, it's very good news. 
Because even though all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus has come to be the judged judge in our place. He takes all of our sins and he removes them from our permanent record forever. He, in a way that we never could on our own, makes us new. And not just us, but the entirety of the cosmos as well. And that's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. The end is already decided. There was a couple that lived right next to the church. Howard and Ruth, they were in a nursing home. I tried to visit them as often as I could. I got to learn their life story, how the relationship came to be. I learned about their children and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. We, we shared lemonade and laughter. We prayed and we pondered until one day Howard took a turn. With each successing visit, I saw less and less life in his eyes. Our time together became far more quiet. And then Ruth called me one day, and she said, Preacher, I don't think Howard is long for this world, and I thought you ought to know. So I packed up my bag, and I, I jogged across the yard to the nursing home. And by the time I got to the room, Howard was already dead, laying in the bed. Ruth, however, was sitting calmly on the couch, drinking lemonade. I'm so sorry, Ruth, I began, and she waved it off, invited me to come sit down beside her. We sat in silence for a while, and every time I tried to start a conversation, she lifted her hand as if to say, shh. But at some point, I could no longer stand it, and I said, Ruth, you've got to say something. Howard is dead over on your bed. And she smiled at me. She said, honey, everything's okay. I know where he really is now. We begin at the end. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with, with wonder and joy and minister your justice with compassion for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. God has gathered us together. God has proclaimed God's word, and now we respond to what God has said and done with the giving of ourselves, our time, our efforts. We, we pray about the way that, that we can be available to all people. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. We also respond with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. I encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts to God through the ministries of Cokesbury United Methodist Church. You may give online. The link for doing so is in the video description. You may give by uh, writing a check and sending it through the mail to the church, or if you live locally, we have a drop slot by our main office doors, and you can bring your offering that way. But give. Give that we might be part of this new thing God does each and every time there is someone in Christ. Another way that we like to respond to what God has said and done is by affirming our faith using the Apostles' Creed. So join me now as we affirm our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now I'd like to offer you this blessing and benediction. May the God of grace and glory, God of the beginning and the end, the God of life and of death and of resurrection, help you to see, know, believe, and forever remember that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. We begin at the end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I look forward to gathering with you again next week, same time, same place, online only, and then in two weeks from now, online or in our parking lot for our drive-in service. Until then, go in peace, be well, amen, amen, and amen. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me still today, walking with me on my way, wanting as a friend to give light and love to all who live. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.